You know, the words of worship declare truths over us, declare truths about who God is and what, what he's really like, what he has to say about you and us, because words are powerful. And we've been leaning into this series called The Word on Words and kind of looking at what the scripture has to say. I just want to open with this quote from Nelson Mandela. It is never my custom to use words lightly. If 27 years in prison has done anything for us, it was to use the silence of solitude to make us understand how precious words really are and how real speech impacts people. Words matter. We've been thinking about that. We've been talking about that. We've been looking at different things. In fact, uh, we gave you a challenge um, that uh, we, there's a couple verses we wanted to lean into in particular in this series. And like, we're giving away stuff for you to win if you could do it. And so like the challenge has been like, and if you're new, like we hardly ever do this except for the last three weeks and now this fourth week, okay? So like we've been challenging people to actually memorize some Bible verses and actually not just to memorize and be able to recite them, but to begin to internalize, all of us begin to internalize these verses. James 1.19, you remember from week one, and then week three we talked about Ephesians 4.29. So anyone here bold enough to say, you don't have to stand up, but you got to wave your hand and be like, I got this. I think I could do one of those. James 1.19 or, it's option night, Ephesians 4.29. Okay, over there. Perfect. Go for it. May it benefit those who listen. Ephesians 4.29. There you go. Your daughter just took that from you. <laughs> Chick-fil-A. Okay, you got it. Anybody else? Bold enough. That was Ephesians 4.29. Anyone? James 1.19. Okay, you going to do it? That's right. Be quick to listen, slow to speak, slow to become angry. I don't have Chick-fil-A. I'm sorry. But I'll let you take those and you can pass them around. M&Ms make friends, I've heard. You can know those. That's the challenge we've been given one another. And some of you are like, man, I should have raised my hand faster. So, okay, you might just, there might be one more chance next week. I'm just saying, I'm not promising. I'm just saying there could be, like, maybe, okay, so just, like, work on that, okay? So, if James 1.19, brothers and sisters, take note of this. Everyone, like, to all skate. No one gets out of it. Everyone should be quick to what? Listen, slow to speak and slow to become angry. Ephesians 4.29, we're going to build each other up with our words that it may benefit those who listen, not necessarily the ones who are talking. And so it's this rhythm and this purpose to our words. And tonight, I, I want to kind of lean into, last week, we looked in kind of this, some of the negative side of words and how we leverage words and how we use them. We talked about this idea of gossip, right? We even elongated the word gossip. 
And it counts, kind of sounds snaky because it is. And it has a way of getting conversations sideways, has a way of getting relationships sideways. And we, we talked about, hey, we got to zip it. We got to be people who are, are going to speak truth to one another. And, and when there's an issue, like we're going to go to that person, not talk about that person, going to talk to that person. And like we want to be a church that practices that and because we want to be a people that practice that. Not just because we belong here, but because we're following Jesus. And like he says, this is the best possible way to live. And so we want to aim that way. And it's so different than what our world talks about. What we said, those with loose tongues cannot expect tight relationships. And so there's this challenge in that. That maybe there's a great Christian virtue in just learning to hold our tongue. And tonight, I want to look in kind of another negative side of communication, where words can go and get sideways for ourselves. A lot of times, it's just ourselves. Sometimes it involves a few other people that we're talking to. But remember, we kind of introduced this concept last night that our thought, or last Sunday, our thought life will impact our talk life. Meaning what we let our, our mind begin to think about, dwell on, and, and kind of chew around in our own mind will actually begin to impact our talk life. Jesus talked about it in Luke where he said, like, out of the, out of the heart is where the words flow. And the mouth kind of speaks from the overflow of what's inside the heart. And so it isn't this separate thing where you just manipulate things. And the Apostle Paul, we looked at these verses last week. Philippians chapter 4, verse 8, finally, brothers and sisters, whatever's true, whatever's noble, whatever's right, whatever's pure, whatever's lovely, whatever's admirable, if anything is excellent or praiseworthy, think on such things. Meaning, let your mind dwell and go here. Let it be something that you begin to put your thought life on because it will actually begin to impact your talk life if you allow it. He's trying to keep us focused. And one of the negative sides of communication that often happens internally, sometimes it spills over into impacting relationships with those around us, is when we begin to express ourselves in grumbling and arguing and whining. I don't know if you parents have ever used the word, like when your kids are whining, you're like, somebody call a wambulance, right? Okay, just my dad? Okay, just, okay. Complaining. I mean, I know this doesn't apply to anyone in this room because we don't grumble or whine or argue or complain. I mean, we're all like, right. Or maybe this applies. Or maybe it even begins to transfer over into some condemning negative self-talk and into these doom loops of conversation that you won't have with anybody else, but you sure have it with yourself. And you begin arguing and complaining and grumbling even against yourself. And it begins to get you sideways, in a way. Complaining is an outward expression of being discontent within. It begins to have this expression in our lives. And, and the reality is, anyone ever been around a complainer before? Were you looking in the mirror? <laughs> Just uh, too soon? Too soon, okay. Uh, Anyone been around a complainer before? Anyone ever worked retail? <laughs> Anyone worked as a waiter or a waitress at a restaurant? <laughs> then you've been around complaining and grumbling. And, and what scripture sometimes will use the word murmuring. I don't know if you've ever done this, but it's like when you talk just above breath level of volume, and you're like, <laughs> but it's actually intelligent words. 
but it doesn't sound like that, but you know what you're saying and you know what's overflowing and coming from you and, and this negative self-talk. Uh, I looked up the Better Business Bureau stats from 2018 of how many complaints were filed. Take a wild guess how many in 2018, so just a year ago, how many? Do you think it's 100 million less than that or over that? What's the plus minus, what do you think? Over. 160,175,192 complaints that were filed, let alone all the complaints that never got filed, right? And if you are a roof contractor or a general contractor or just construction services in general, whoo, you're top three. So if that's your field, I'm sorry, you're dealing with a lot of complainers. Online retailers, they were at number four at four million. Uh, I found one, they had six complaints filed against tree climbing training companies. Did you even know that existed? People can help train you how to climb a tree? Six people were upset enough that they filed a complaint against the Better Business Bureau against those companies. I didn't know they even existed. Complaining can, can be called a, a way of life in our culture and in our context. A complaint-free world website said this, according to their stats, and I don't know if they're true or not, the average person complains between 15 and 30 times each day. So I'll ask you again, have you been around complainers? Now, don't raise your hand here. Is that stat true for you? Like, think about it, honestly. Don't raise your hand, but, like, think about it. Do I find myself complaining, like internally or externally, 15 to 30 times a day? And maybe it's about a parking place, maybe it's about food, maybe it's about a situation that's happening, maybe it's at work, whatever that may be. Complaining has an effect on us. Studies will show that when you complain, your body releases the stress hormone cortisol, a fight or flight mechanisms that are beginning to get wired off in your life. All the extra cortisol releases by frequent complaining can begin to impair your immune system, make you more susceptible to high cholesterol and diabetes and heart disease and obesity. It can even make your brain more vulnerable to strokes. Medical stats. Like complaining maybe actually has an effect that's more than just stress relationally. Maybe it actually has an impact on us individually. And so this challenge, this invitation, as we begin to kind of continue to look at words and how we use them, is this challenge maybe that Paul introduces. Say, look, let your mind dwell here. And yet we live in a cultural context where if we're not on guard with it, our mind almost naturally is pulled in another direction. If we're filing 165 million complaints every year that are just filed, not even just talked about, then I just think that says something about kind of this fishbowl we live in, right? That, and I don't think you're immune to this. I know I'm not immune to this. And so it's, it's easy if we're not careful, if we're not deliberate, we can begin to let our minds go here and we can begin to complain. Now, some people say, well, 
are, are, are some people wired maybe a little bit differently? Are they wired to complain a little bit more than others? Uh, how many of you would say, you know, I, I probably describe myself as a happy, joyful, happy-go-lucky kind of person. Maybe that's you. And, and so is it someone that is like the you know, glass half empty type of person? Is it the difference between optimism and pes- being a pessimist in life? Is it whether I'm an introvert or an extrovert? Is it based on my Enneagram type? Is it my, based on my personality or my Meyer-Briggs score? Like what, what kind of delineates who complains and who doesn't? Or maybe who has more of a pattern for that in life? And you can begin to think through all those things. And those are helpful things to learn about yourself. But I don't know if you can actually pinpoint well, this person complains because of X, Y, Z. Or this person may be pre, more predisposed uh, to do this. The scriptures kind of treat us as a way of saying, look, this is just a humanity issue. It's maybe not pre-wired one to the other, but complaining can be a symptom of a failure to trust God, to be submissive and grateful for what he's done. We, we see in Numbers chapter 11, this is after the story of Exodus, and the story of incredible redemption. God rescues his people, brings them out with incredible miraculous signs, right? Signs and wonders, rescues them out, is providing for them in the desert. We're talking like a million plus people, and he's providing everything they need. And yet, this is what arises within them. Even in that situation, even having seen everything that God has done, Numbers 11.1 says this, Soon the people began to complain about their hardship. And the Lord, Yahweh, heard everything they said. And Yahweh's anger blazed against them. And he sent a fire to rage among them. And he destroyed some of the people in the outskirts of the camp. And we read that and go, whoa. You ever have a parenting moment with your kids where, like, there's a certain level of complaining that we kind of put up with, right? And then it seems like there, there reaches an upper echelon of complaining, and as a parent, like, your blood begins to boil a little bit, and you're like, you ungrateful brat. I'm just, like, you don't say that out loud, but in your head, you're like running this conversation. At least I have, I'll be honest. And so like in that moment, you're like, oh, I can't believe it. I don't understand. I don't, God doesn't lose control of his emotions. But the scriptures are pretty clear that this complaining thing can grind. Why? Because you know it grinds. Like you've, you've found that and felt that. You ever read this story? I remember reading the story of the Israelites coming out in Exodus and early on, like in my 20s, and you just, you read, and over and over and over, you see this, like, just story of complaint coming out. And I remember in my 20s going, God, I'm so sorry that your people complain like this. This is ridiculous. And in that moment, it's like the Spirit's going, hey, buddy, that's you. No, 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 God, that, that's ancient Israel people. That's, that's your people back there. I've advanced so much. This is 2001 or whatever it was. And, and God's like, no, 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 that's you. The reason this pattern happens is not because it's Israel and not because it's like they're in a desert. It's because it's humanity. Guess what you are? Humanity. And this is you, man. 
And I remember in that moment going, wow, I'm a bigger complainer than I realize. I'm a bigger murmurer than I realize. I'm a bigger whiner than I realize. And friends, I still struggle with this. And I don't think I'm the only one in the room. And so this challenge, it's like, okay, this is a people thing. Complaining can create a negative kind of fog within our conversations that just kind of bleeds over into our relationships. And and suddenly things can get sideways or uneasy or on tilt. Complaining kills joy. It just has a way of kind of sucking the joy right out of the room. It makes you unhappy. It makes everyone around you. How many of you, let's just be honest, have logged time around people who are in a complaining cycle? And in your heart, you're like, I want to be anywhere else but right here. Right? No, no, listen. Sometimes you're the producer of that cycle. Sometimes I am too. If we're not careful, if we don't kind of keep watch, remember we're, we're trying to guard our words. That's what James was kind of drilling home in week two and three, right? You've got to guard your words. Why? Because this tongue is untamable. There's an unpredictable factor to it, and you will never escape that. You never fully get away from it. And again, if you're here, if you've missed any of this series Like, I never challenge you to go back and listen to everything, but I'm telling you, please, please, please go back and listen. Because I'm convinced for me, and I'm convinced for us, that if we can get better at this, we not only will have better relationships, but we will earn the right to be heard to a world that's suffering right alongside and seeing this, and the struggle is real. Because once complaining starts, it's really hard to stop, isn't it? You ever found that to happen in, in, in groups that you're out and, and maybe some person brings up a complaint? And that's, this is not saying that you can't ever like oh, have a grievance or something. But like it gets into the cycle where you bring something up and someone else is like, well, I got to outdo that story. And they start doing their complaining and they start doing their complaining. And pretty soon it's like this fog has taken over this group, right? And part of that's human and part of that's we lean toward that. But maybe part of that isn't for our best. And so it doesn't mean you have to fake joy. It doesn't mean you can't ever be discontented. But maybe there's something here for us to guard. In fact, Paul writes just a couple chapters before that in Philippians. Here's what he says. The scriptures are calling us to a different way of living. He says this real clear. Inspired by the Holy Spirit. Do everything without grumbling or arguing. Okay, Paul. Like, everything... I mean, what's the Greek word for that? I looked it up. Guess what it means? Do everything. Do everything without grumbling or arguing. Man, that's hard. Yeah, that's really hard in our culture. Do everything without grumbling and arguing so that you may become blameless and pure. He uses a couple key words here children of God without fault in a warped and crooked generation. He's referring back to activities of the exodus here, of the cycle that was at play in the Israel people that is a human issue, 
not just the them issue. And as you do that, then you will shine among them like stars, among the world around you like stars in the sky, as you hold firmly to the word of life. And then I will be able to boast on the day of Christ that I did not run or labor in vain. Do everything without grumbling and complaining. If I was going to get you a third verse to memorize, it would just be that first part of this one. Why? Because I just think in our cultural context, it's so easy to to grumble and complain. And to go there and to go there consistently and to maybe go there more often than what's necessary. And this challenge, A.W. Tozer writes this, among those sins most exquisitely fitted to injure the soul and destroy the testimony, few can equal the sin of complaining. Meaning, it can not only injure your soul, it begins to destroy the testimony that you have to the people around you. That as a follower of Jesus, one who's been saved by his grace, healed, and in the process of being regenerated to be more and more like him, that when we allow ourselves to go over to grumbling and complaining, and that becomes the cycle of our life, then we kind of mar this joy that's supposed to mark our life. And this isn't about being an optimist or a pessimist. This is about being a follower of Jesus and letting him begin to shape and change the way we use our words. Paul's writing to the Philippian church, like you're gonna work out your salvation, not work for your salvation. You're gonna work this out in your everyday life. And then he gives a practical example of here's how this begins to impact and have an impact in how you now live. He's saying, look, what you had before is this arrogance that leads to dissension and conflict and discord among their community. That's why the first part of Philippians chapter 2, he's saying, look, here's what Jesus is like. Be like him. This humble servant who came, gave up everything and came. Follow his example. Don't let discord and dissension ruin your testimony, ruin your relationships. Don't let conflict and dissension begin to create a tension within your relationships that you cannot get around or work through. you got to guard your tongue. This is what it's saying over and over. Why is complaining and arguing so harmful? Because it's the complete opposite of Christ's attitude described in Philippians 2, 1 through 8. It's just the complete opposite. And if we're going to emulate Jesus, Now, I'm saying that to everyone here who is a follower of Jesus. If you're just here checking out church, man, I can't tell you how proud I am of you being here. I think it's awesome that you would own your faith to begin to search this out for yourself. And if you're not there yet, then you're getting to eavesdrop in and what what Paul, what the Apostle Paul and what Jesus is saying, look, for followers of me, we're supposed to live this way. And I just want to apologize. Like, if you're not a follower of Jesus, but you're here and you're investigating, listen, I know. I know you've been harmed. I know that you have been thrown off by Christians. Listen, listen, I'll get real practical. You've been thrown off by me. I'll own it. You've been thrown off by me. Why? Because I do this. And I don't want to. And I'm not alone. Am I? And so what A.W. Tozer wrote, man, this has a way of just destroying your inner soul, has a way of just wrecking your testimony. 
to people. That doesn't mean you can't have issues. It doesn't mean you can't voice your opinion. It doesn't mean you can't bring things up to try to get things better. But this is about an attitude of the heart. I've seen more church splits probably over this than any kind of heresy or false teaching. It's just happened because dissensions and arguments grow up and and it doesn't get dealt with in a healthy way and nobody owns what they need to own and things just begin to go sideways. And I bet if you've been around the church for a while, you've seen it too. And so what Paul's writing is, look, this is a big, big deal. That you would be blameless and pure. Wow, those are heavy words. Blameless, this idea of I'm, not, I'm living above reproach, and it's not that I'm perfect, but that it's, I'm, I'm working on that, allowing the Spirit of God to change me to be more and more like him. And that I'm pure. That, that Greek word is literally describing wine that had not been diluted meaning that your life has not become diluted by the things around you, the challenges that are there. There ought to be nothing within the church that would weaken its strength or contaminate the truth that it promotes, Jesus. And when we give in to whining and grumbling and complaining and dissension, friends, I just, I fear we hurt our witness. We we damage our testimony instead of highlighting the incredible beauty and grace that's been given to us in Jesus, and the opportunity now to live more and more like him. That as you begin to live this out, you begin to shine in a way that's so radically different. Jesus said, you're the light of the world. He described himself as the light of the world, but he also said to his church, to his followers, you're the light of the world. Paul's leaning into that, and he's saying, look, you're to shine so radically different than the dark backdrop that's around you. Uh, I was talking with a a kid this week. I don't know if you've ever been in a place where you just saw the stars. Maybe out in in the wilderness, you're away from the city or something. I remember being in Sells, Arizona, near Baba Kivri, and I have never seen stars like I saw that night. And it just had this incredible brightness that shone from them. And I, every time I read this passage, that's the picture I have, is what if Christians, what if you, what if me, what if we begin to, to actually guard our tongue more, get better at this, that we work quick to listen and slow to speak, and that we try to build up with our words that would be helpful to those who listen. What if we actually tried to guard ourselves from grumbling and complaining, and we begin to live with our minds focused more on what's noble and what's trustworthy and what's right, and we let our minds go there. What if we actually began to do this? Friends, I'm convinced we would begin to live out this verse. We would begin to shine against the backdrop that is all around us. And when a body of believers remains pure and blameless, when they're working on this, when they're trying to shine in a way, it impacts the world around them. And here's what I know about you. You want that to happen. You go to work every day wanting that to happen. 
wanting to shine in a way that it makes a difference in real people's lives. You go and volunteer. You go and live your life in a way where you want that to happen. And so maybe one of the greatest ways we could get better at this is just trying to practice what James said. Let's learn to guard our tongue. Let's practice this rhythm. Let's practice this purpose. Our words have the ability to attract people or to repel people, don't they? And it's not just our words when we're sharing about Jesus. It's our everyday words and how we live our lives. We're to shine. And so Paul said at the very beginning, Philippians 4, man, whatever's true, whatever's noble, whatever's right, whatever's pure, whatever's lovely, admirable, focus on these things. What we let our minds think about will eventually be what our words talk about. Now, here's a little caveat. You and I cannot control every thought that comes in our head, can we? And we can focus on it, and we can put our energy there. But you cannot control every single thought that comes in your mind. But here's what you can be. You can begin to be an air traffic controller of your mind. Every thought that comes in doesn't have to land and hang out. Right? You can be the air traffic controller of your mind and say, no, 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 see, (laughs) that ain't right for me. I'm going to let that keep on flying by. No permission to land here. We're going to keep on rolling by. We're going to think about something else. I'm going to redirect my mind back to something else. That's what it means to take every thought captive. 2 Corinthians 10, Paul writes, look, we, dem- uh, we demolish arguments and every pretense that sets itself up against the knowledge of God. We take every thought captive and make it obedient to Christ. That it's when those moments, when those thoughts begin to come into our mind that we begin to say, okay, no, no, no landing permission here. Jesus, I need you to help fill my mind with what's right and what's noble, what's trustworthy. And I want to begin to direct my mind back toward that. I don't want this negative side of conversation, whether it's whining or complaining or arguing, whether that never leaves the lips of my mouth. I don't want it to land in my mind and take up residence or even take up occupancy there. I want it to keep on moving. I want to lean on your promises. We will each get infected if we are not careful to cultivate the antidote of of gratitude. I think that's what the scriptures speak so often, about cultivating gratitude in your own heart, in your own mind. John Henry Joy, a British preacher, said this, gratitude is a vaccine, an antioxidant, and an antiseptic. A vaccine, it can prevent the invasion of disgruntled, discouraging spirit Like an antioxidant in gratitude, it can prevent the effects of the poisons of cynicism and criticalness and grumbling. Like an antiseptic, the spirit of gratitude began to soothe and heal the most troubled spirit or soul. That if we begin to live where gratitude is what I want to give my life to, what I want to give my heart to, what I want to focus on with that, I can grow gratitude by recounting and remembering everything that God has done for me in my own life. And maybe as we move toward Thanksgiving, I just want to invite you. Maybe this is your month where you just kind of open a note on your phone and every day you're going to take maybe a minute, 60 seconds, just to jot what you're grateful for, who you're grateful for, how you're grateful for how God's been active in your life. We can grow our attitude by murmuring in a positive way. 
whispering over and over all the promises of God in our life. I love what Peter writes in 2 Peter chapter 1. We'll get there in a second, but I want you to remember who's writing this. Peter is writing this. The one who bailed on Jesus in his most dire moment. The one that a little slave girl kind of said to him, hey, aren't you the one that hung out with Jesus? No, 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 don't know that guy. And Peter bailed on Jesus. And Jesus even told him ahead of time, hey, before the rooster crows three times, you're going to deny me three times. No, Jesus, I won't do that. If you're killed, I'm going to be right there with you. Little slave girl, hey, weren't you hanging out? No, 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 I don't know that guy. And in that moment, the rooster crows. And where does Peter go? He runs. Why? You would too. I would too. Because we bailed on our best friend in the moment. And that's why I love uh, Mark. Mark 16, 7, one of my favorite verses in the Bible. This is right after the resurrection. And the angel says to the women there, and he says, you go tell the disciples, and my favorite two words, and Peter. You go tell the disciples and Peter that he's going ahead to Galilee and he'll meet you there. Why? Because Jesus never bails on his friends. He never bails on you. Never bails on me. We may bail on him, but he won't bail on us. And later in life, Peter writes these words. Grace and peace be yours in abundance, not reluctance, not siphoned out a little bit, but in abundance. His, Jesus' divine power, has given us everything we need for a godly life through our knowledge of him who called us. Through this, he has given us a very great and precious promises so that through them, we may participate in the divine nature. Leaning on God's promises, not what you promise, not what I promise, but on what God promises. See, as much as we want to guard our words, friends, I invite you into reading through Scripture that you may hear the words of Jesus over your life. That you may hear his promises over your life. God promises to never leave you nor forsake you. As one who has said yes to Jesus, he will never abandon you, friend. God promises that he is with you no matter the challenge or setback or failure, any hurdle you face, you are never, ever, ever alone. His promise to you. God promises that his power is made perfect in your weakness, that he is sufficient and he is enough for you. You will never face a situation where he is not able to lead you through it. God promises his love is an everlasting kind of love, not one based on reciprocal give and take, but one where he is all in, totally committed to you. You are once and for all, forever loved and valued by him. That's his promise to you. God's promise to work all things together for your good. He is your greatest support. He is for you and he is for your best. Jesus is always your advocate. And he is greater than any and every enemy or attack that comes against you. That's his promise. 
Others may speak against you in this life, but God speaks words of affirmation and dignity and healing and reconciliation over you. You have one that speaks for you. In the Old Testament, you have one who sings over you with rejoicing. That's his promise. Jesus is the one who loves you most and loves you best. He speaks wisdom into you, guidance over you. He is your encourager. He is your hope. He is your protector, your sustainer, your provider, your counselor, your comforter. He is the light that leads you forward every day and each and every moment. The one who will ultimately lead you home one day. That is his promise to you. Through these things, we have been given great and precious promises that we may participate in the divine life that Jesus has for us. So the exchange needs to happen. Maybe it's hourly, maybe it's daily, maybe it's weekly, but learn to make the exchange. God, I want to focus on these things. Man, this stuff begins to get my attention. I begin to drift this way. I don't want, I want to guard my tongue. I want to get better. I want to lean back on your promises because they will meet me and hold me, and carry me, and lift me. And so, Jesus, we want to lean into your promises. Your promises are sealed by your life and your death and your resurrection that you came to prove that what you say can be counted on, period. And so as we worship you through communion in a moment, and in a couple songs, songs that speak words over us and into us about who you say we are. God, we don't want grumbling and complaining, dissension to mark our life because we have been marked and sealed by your spirit. We have been saved and rescued by you, Jesus. And we are spoken over by you in your love and your hope your grace, every moment of our life. And so as we pause, we remember it was your life, your death, your resurrection, that you hung on that cross in my place. Exchanged your life that I might be found and find life in you yesterday, today and forever. A promise that you can take to the bank. It cashes every single time. It never gets lost. It never gets stolen. It never gets swiped away. It never gets misplaced. It is a forever reality that marks every single moment for us. So would you meet us in these moments? Would you change us in these moments?